A Nukovo Airlines flight is making a flight from Moscow to Svalbard when something goes wrong on approach. What caused this flight to crash while they are making their descent? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Housekeeping. Uh, we don't really have any new patrons, right? Uh, Kate came back. That's all I know. Yes, she did. Welcome back, Kate. Thank you. We will send you ducks. Don't worry. Yes, momentarily. I've got nothing else. Check out nothing. the merch site. Check out Patreon. You guys know the spiel. Yeah. The huge. The huge. All right, so what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Nukovo Airlines Flight 2801. And yes, it's Nukovo. Starts with a V. Speaking of, thank you to Kate for recommending this episode. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. And thank you, Russian, for the weird phonetics. Yes. And also, sorry for all of the many, many words and names I am going to butcher yep, today. It's You've bad. been warned in advance. Yes. This accident happened on August 29th of 1996. This was a Tupolev TU-154M mic. Have we covered a Tupolev before? We've covered a Tupolev before, I believe. This tail number was Romeo Alpha 85621. The TU-154 is a trijet with three engines mounted at the rear. It's a midsize airplane with a mid to long range. So, pretty capable airplane built by the Soviets. This is post-Soviet era, though. The airplane's aging. Yeah, Soviet Union fell in 92? 91, I believe. Somewhere around there. Was the collapse. The flight was to be from Nukovo, which is a suburb of Moscow. Nukovo Airport, which is still there. And done by Nukovo Airlines. Yep. Wow, what do you know? Wow. They also have the Domodedovo. They also have Domodedovo Airport, which has Domodedovo Airlines. So they're really bad at this. (laughs) Just naming your airline after this. Yes. So anyways, it's from Moscow to Svalbard in Norway. Wow. Which, if you know nothing about Svalbard, is actually not in mainland Norway. It's its own island well into the Arctic Circle. The reason that it's kind of relevant to today in particular, so today was daylight savings for us, as of when we're recording, and so the sun went down really early, and so we were wondering, I wonder how much sun Svalbard got today? So we looked for their sunset time today. They didn't have one. They didn't have a sunrise or a sunset? The sun never came up today. Oh, yeah. Because they're just too far north. They're now in that problem. They had half an hour of sun yesterday. And then that was their last bit of sun until March. Yep, they Dang. don't see the sun till March now. This actually came up in a TikTok at random about an hour ago. Hmm. So thank you, TikTok, <laughs> for your scary algorithms. This was a charter flight for coal miners and their families to get to the towns of Bartonsburg and Pyramiden near Svalbard, on the island of Svalbard. That's not at all how they look phonetically, do they? Bartonsburg, actually, yes. Pyramiden, also, yes. Oh, okay. Actually, those are fine. Um, it, it's quite literally P-Y-R-A-M-I-D-E-N. Pyramiden. And Bartonsburg is very phonetic. Okay, well, that's weird. Yeah. Now for things that aren't phonetic. <laughs> the captain for today's flight, Evgeny, E-V-G-E-N-Y. He has a middle name, too. <laughs> Nikolovich. Nikolev. So his middle okay. name is Nikolovich and his last name is Nikolev. Okay. 
44 years old. He is the pilot in command, as the report says, but he is the captain of this flight. I call him pilot in command, just so we're clear. That's fine. He is also pilot in command, because he is captain. He has 6,232 hours total, of which 1,940 hours are on the Tupolev, so a decent amount. That said, the first officer, Boris Fedorovich Sudarev, 58 years old, he had 19,538 hours total, of which 10,177 were on the TU-154. Now, why is that? That's because they are both captains for this oh. airline. They are also both instructors on the TU-154. I was and like, yes. why is he not piloting command? So, this is where things get strange. We'll talk about this a little bit now, just so that this kind of clarifies. They're both in the cockpit, they're both captains, but... They're in opposing seats. So the captain's actually in the right seat, and the first officer is in the left seat. Now, why is the captain the captain in this case? He has fewer hours. They're both captains. Why isn't the one with more hours the captain? That's because the first officer, the one with more hours, has done this flight into Svalbard several times before. Meanwhile, the captain for this flight has not. So to have him, he is the pilot flying in this case, as the pilot flying, it makes more sense to have him as captain for this flight so that he can get the experience of flying into Svalbard. All this is very confusing, but that's what's happening. I feel like you can also do that as a first officer in yes. the right seat, so I don't yes. quite understand why they had to make that distinction. Correct. But okay. So yep. whenever I talk about pilot in command is the dude in the right seat, and whenever I say co-pilot is the dude in the left seat. Meanwhile, there are two other people in the cockpit. Because this is a TU-154. There is a flight engineer. That one Miranda assumed. Yep. And they, they all have duties on this flight, FYI. Anyways, the flight engineer is Anatoly Matvievich Karapetrov. Yes, we're going to go with that. Karapetrov. He was 38 years old at the time. He had 5,254 hours total, all of which were on the TU-154. The fourth person in the cockpit is the navigator, Igor Petrovich Akimov. He was 50 years old. He had 13,814 hours total, of which 4,646 hours were on the TU-154. So he was also the second most experienced in the cockpit. Ooh, that's surprising. Yep. On board were also five cabin crew and two maintenance technicians from the airline that were traveling with the plane to service it while it was away from Moscow, if needed. The flight was to have 127 adults and three children for a total of 130 passengers. The flight departed Moscow, Nukovo Airport, at around 7.44 a.m. They climbed to a cruising altitude of flight level 350 and a cruising speed of 500 kilometers an hour. 270 knots. 270 okay. knots, okay, so... Fast, but not that fast. Which is 310 miles per hour. The flight proceeded normally until they were to begin their descent. So it was a three and a half hour flight in total from one to the other, which, by the way, just for a little bit of geographical mind-blowing weirdness, the flight from Oslo, which is in Norway, in mainland Norway, to Svalbard is three hours, and the flight from Moscow to Svalbard is three and a half hours. That's where Svalbard is. It's north of both of them in a triangle. The crew had discussed and prepared themselves for an expected landing on runway 10. There's only one runway in all of Svalbard. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> At 9.55 a.m. and 40 seconds, 
As they were about 266 kilometers from the airport, they requested clearance to start their descent, but due to, quote, lack of communication with Bodo ATCC, a descent clearance could not be obtained, end quote. So they couldn't descend. They didn't have clearance to descend. That said, 9.56 a.m. and 8 seconds, they then made contact with the Longyear APHIS, which is the Aerodrome Information System, for these more remote areas. This is a common term for places on Earth that are more remote and don't generally have air traffic control. These APHIS basically just keep a watch on these areas and report information based on the airport's weather, traffic in the area, things like that. They do not have the same authority as ATC. They do not have ATC authority at all. And as a matter of fact, they don't have TC certificates. They have their own. And they are not known as air traffic controllers. They are known as APHIS officers. So this is a very different job. But they are still communication. They still provide information. So they made contact with the Longyear APHIS. And the APHIS officer told them that there was no conflicting traffic down to 6,000 feet. We'll talk a little bit later on about the communication that happened after that. So, they begin their descent down into Svalbard. A short time later, information was passed to the crew from the safest officer that runway 28 was in use, as the winds were at 230 degrees at 16 knots. So they were planning on the 10 runway? Yes. yes. But now they have to go in the other direction? They Correct. planned that. They even practiced it in a simulator. The captain is very familiar with the 10 approach. Okay. Visibility was more than 10 kilometers, but there was rain and a few clouds at 1,500 feet, scattered at 2,000 feet, and broken at 4,000 feet. These are all different aviation terms for density of clouds. So generally, a lot of cloud cover overall. As you go up thousands of feet, it gets more and more. The crew attempted to request landing on runway 10, but none of them spoke English well, so the request was misunderstood. Uh-oh. The APHIS officer informed them again that runway 28 is in use. The crew acknowledged and told the APHIS officer that they would be routing via the India Sierra Delta, which is a beacon. It's a waypoint along their, their planned route. It stands for... Is Fjord? That. It's the fjord that is to the west of the airport. Yes. And they continued descending. Sometime later, the crew again requested landing on runway 10. But again, the call was misunderstood. And the APHIS officer again informed him that the runway in use was runway 2A. Yeah, I feel like even when you don't speak English well, runway 28 said multiple times now is like, that is the runway in use. Yes, but we'll talk about why this is important later. Yes. It's very important to understand his role and what he's saying. The crew acknowledged and began preparing for an approach to runway 28. The approach have them fly over the Alpha Delta Victor Beacon at an angle, and then make a sharp turn to the right to fly at an angle away from the airport before making a 180-degree turn to the left back toward the airport to then fly at a heading of 300 down a valley surrounded by 3,000-foot mountains on either side. Oh, this isn't going to go well. On a 17-degree offset approach before making a left turn to line up with the runway on short final. This is so not going to go well. <laughs> Mountains, valleys, turns at the last set. So not going to go well. This is the chart that they have in the cockpit. This is the Jeppesen provided chart. It's correct. Which, by the way, guys, Jeppesen is the company who makes all charts, basically. Well, sort of. Yes, basically. Uh, many charts. The FAA provides their own in the United States, but Jeppesen provides them for the rest of the world, basically. And Jeppesen, Jeppesen is a still a prominent 
company in the United States. Oh, yes, very much so. Based in, here in Denver. Yep, and our the terminal at Denver International Airport is the Jeppesen Terminal. They're a major player in charting and aviation services. So, this is a relatively tedious approach. By comparison, the approach to runway 10 had them fly up Isfjorder and make a right turn to final. That's it. Super easy. That's the whole approach. And there is a straight-in approach option for runway 28, but they were not at all set up, set for, up that. for that. No, yeah. no. They were using the chart, so they followed the chart. Which is good, but I feel like there is something that's going to go wrong. <laughs> well, we wouldn't be here if it didn't. So, uh... the descent continued until they reached 5,000 feet, which is the minimum descent altitude for reaching... The Alpha Delta Victor Beacon. Yay, MDA. Also known as Advent. And I will call it both. That's the official entrance to the approach is over Advent. Okay. So the minimum descent altitude they can go down to is 5,000 feet, reaching Advent. And that is also the altitude that's required to begin their final approach. Okay. Once they've made the turn. Oh, I meant to mention this earlier. For those of you who are wondering why Svalbard sounds familiar, if any of you guys read or watched The Golden Compass, that's where most of the film slash book happens sure now backing up a little bit as the flight had descended below 10,000 feet they entered instrument meteorological conditions that means they flew into the clouds they were in the clouds below anything below 10,000 feet that sucks so they can't see anything correct which they don't need to they're flying an instrument approach they have everything at their disposal to fly this instrument approach okay the plane was operated in automatic stabilization mode for both pitch and roll during descent. The autopilot was on. Good. <laughs> they did something right. For both pitch and roll. Yes. Here's where things get strange. The navigator was put in charge of operating the automatic stabilization mode for lateral. So, roll, basically. So, the navigator's flying the plane. The navigator's flying the plane as per direction. He's in charge using knobs on the autopilot that are on his panel... Of controlling the airplane's direction of flight. While the first officer, or the... Other captain. The captain. left, the captain, left pilot. Yes. The left was captain. <laughs> at the time controlling the aircraft's speed and altitude. The flight passed overhead of the Alpha Delta Victor, or Advent Beacon, at 10.15 a.m. and 32 seconds. At which time, they made the sharp turn to the right and informed the APHIS officer of their position. They did have reporting points that they were supposed to report to APHIS. 8.17 a.m. and 8 seconds, the crew started the turn to the left to fly down the valley following the Jeppesen approach chart that they had in the cockpit. 10.17 a.m. and 57 seconds, the crew request confirmation from the APHIS officer that they were to report next when they were established on the approach and 8 nautical miles away from the airport. Or a beam of advent. A beam of advent. So, so that would put them immediately next to advent on the approach. Which the APHIS officer replied, quote, correct, end quote. This was the last time that the flight and APHIS would communicate. At the time of the communication, the APHIS officer checked his... It's not really a radar, but basically... It's explicitly not a radar. It is explicitly not a radar, but it is a way of tracking the plane, basically. We'll leave it at that. And the plane was exactly where he expected them to be on this part of the approach at that time. So everything seemed to be going swimmingly. Suddenly, at 10.18 a.m. and 24 seconds, the radio altimeter oral warning activated twice in the cockpit. So the first officer took the controls and turned off the autopilot pitch control, so vertical, the 
Navigator still has control of Left Roll. and right, yeah. He took over control six seconds after the warning began by overriding it, more than likely by pushing on the controls. So when you say the radio altimeter, did that mean it, they were, like, too low? Yes. This means that, yes, they were quite low to the ground. So They were still at a safe altitude when it went off. So the radio altimeter is basically an echolocation that signal that the plane sends to the ground and then measures the time it takes to bounce back to them, and that's how it tells you how high above the ground you are. Yes, it, we've covered it before, but my thing is, is it like a GPWS? Like, they're getting too low to the ground. The, GPWS, necessarily. the GPWS is driven from the radio altimeter. Yes, yes. I knew that. Okay. In this airplane in particular. Now, that said, this airplane, much like we've talked about actually on the 757 when we were talking about Aero Peru recently, also the radio altimeter activates at 2,500 feet okay. and begins sounding. So they're... All right. So they have at least 2,500 feet to work with. Right. Which my, is a safe altitude. My question is, they're at MDA, right? Are yes. they supposed to be? They are at MDA. When are they allowed to go below MDA? There is a point on the chart that which tells them they are allowed to begin descending. At 13 miles from the point where they have to turn to the runway heading. Okay. And where are they now? At about that point. So they can... About okay. now, start descending. They're getting pretty close, yes. They're still in the turn, but they're about to get to that point where they can start descending. But we'll get them. My, that's my question is, is they're supposed to be at 5,000? They're yes. at 5,000. But, but the radio altimeter wouldn't sound unless they're at 2,500. Above 25, the ground. Above ground. They're at 5,000 above sea level. Oh, okay. They're at 2,500 above the ground. That was my question. They yes. are flying over terrain. 10.18 a.m. and 37 seconds, the flaps were extended to 15 degrees. As the aircraft rolled out of its turn... On to the deviated final approach, there was a discussion in the cockpit by the crew about whether they had made the turn too early. The airplane was then turned to the right to make a correction while they were 14.7 <laughs> nautical miles from the airport, still flying at 5,000 feet. No, 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 no. This is just the beginning. No, 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 no. It's almost the end of my part, but this is just the beginning. If it makes you feel any better, they were right in saying that they took a turn at a wrong time. So That one? You mean that one? We'll talk about it. They're still flying at 5,000 feet. The peaks are at 3,000. Right now, we're okay. We're okay. The flaps were then increased to 28 degrees, and the airspeed reduced to about 180 knots. 10.19 a.m. and 51 seconds. The navigator noted the distance to the airport as 14 nautical miles. Oh, so we're right here. The crew then discussed when to start the final descent, per the chart. 10.20 a.m. and 17 seconds, the captain noted that the airplane should be corrected to the left for the winds. Make sure that they keep flying on the same course, but they have to account point the nose. The they have to account for the wind. They have to point it slightly to the left. The airplane was subsequently turned to the left slightly. While in the turn, the navigator noted that they were 13 nautical miles out. And while the plane was at an actual distance of 12 and a half nautical miles from the airport, they began descending per the approach chart. So roughly in the right amount of time, they began their descent. 10.21 a.m. and 13 seconds, the crew made another corrective turn to the right, while 10.3 nautical miles from the airport, all the while descending. Why are they turning? Why are they turning? Why are they turning? You'll find out later. Why are they turning? Stop turning. Stop turning. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Stop. Don't do that. These are all very small turns, 10 degrees roughly within. When and you're when you're close to mountains, though, yes. you don't got a lot of like wiggle room there. You are I right. Will, I will say they are allowed to be within ten degrees of the localizer path, so it's okay that they're making these tiny corrections. <laughs> Their mistake was way earlier. Although this is all still a mistake, but <laughs> all of it's a mistake. Ten twenty-two a.m. in five seconds, the airplane started turning to the left again while they were eight nautical miles from the airport. So at this point, they're a beam. 
advent. At that same time, the aircraft encountered some strong turbulence that bumped them around momentarily. Meanwhile, bumping back a bit, they had already put the landing gear down also. So in the midst of all of this, they are still preparing for the approach while making all these turns. I feel like that's pretty far away for the landing gear, but maybe I don't know. No, not really. That's about right. A few moments later, the ground proximity warning system began indicating in the cockpit, indicating that they were less than 750 meters from the ground below. The crew immediately reacted by applying thrust to the engines and pulling the nose of the airplane upward. Three seconds after the GPWS warning began indicating, the radio altimeter warning activated as well. The captain then yelled, Horizon! Horizon! Immediately followed by the first officer yelling, Mountains! Mountains! 10.22 a.m. and 23 seconds. Just nine seconds after the ground proximity warning system began indicating, the aircraft collided with the top of Oprofjellet Mountain. Oh, God. <laughs> yep. At 2,975 feet above sea level. Just 7.7 nautical miles from the airport. The airplane disintegrated on impact completely. How the f*** did they get all the way the f*** over there? We'll talk about it. All 141 on board the aircraft perished immediately upon impact. I mean, you're going full speed into a mountain. Unfortunately, nose first. Yeah. DNA was the primary identifying tool for everyone. Find the bodies. Were they even able to get to the plane? Yes. Yes. This is 10 in the morning? Almost 11 o'clock in the morning? Yes, it's in broad daylight. Okay. Is it broad daylight? (laughs) <laughs> it is. It's in August. Okay. It, there actually is. I knew it was in August, but I was going to say, is it light outside? Because I don't know. So much broad daylight, actually, that they don't have nightlight at this time of year. From mid-May to mid-August, it's nothing but daylight. They don't see dark. They see the sun all of that time. Well, I feel really bad for the people who live on that island. That must be really weird. Invest in some blackout curtains. That was actually a really good question. I'm proud of you. Okay, so this investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board of Norway, or the AAIB. A lot of countries use that particular set of... Acronym. Yes, words. We use the NTSB because it encompasses all forms of transportation. Correct. Yeah, our NTSB does investigations on trains and... Planes. Planes and and trucks and cars and boats. They do it all. Or bikes. Any transportation. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was performed by the AAIB of Norway with the help of the Interstate Aviation Committee, or IAC, of Russia. They are also known as MAK. I don't know what that is in Russian. Don't come for me. And throughout the report, the two were just referred to as the boards. It seemed to be much more of an equal partnership, and it just so happened that the Norwegian entity happened to publish the report. Both black boxes were recovered, surprisingly. Huzzah! The cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, was found in the wreckage area on top of the mountain and was brought to the IAC Technical Scientific Center in Moscow. It was damaged from impact, but the internal mechanisms were unharmed. The flight data recorder, or FDR, was buried in the snow below the point of impact and was also brought to Moscow for examination and also had no damage to the internal recorder. The only two parameters that didn't record correctly were channel 18, which was the right elevator position, and channel 12, the gyromagnetic heading. The boards spent some time narrowing down possible causes and were able to eliminate weather. They also ruled out anything happening mechanically to the plane with the help of the black box data, which also helped determine that nothing was wrong with the vertical navigation. The investigation narrowed on the aspect of lateral navigation since it was two nautical miles away from the approach center line. The wreckage trail was in the direction of heading 330 degrees. 
and the two compasses indicated 310 and 316 degrees, which was contradictory to the FDR, which said that impact was at heading 291 degrees. Oh, Jesus. You start to see some of the problem. So were the compasses wrong? Investigators actually figured out that the plane hit the edge of the mountain at an angle, a 45-degree angle if I'm not mistaken, which deflected the wreckage to the right of its heading, and then it rolled to the left before impact, which would have caused the compasses to change before power was cut, and the boards determined that the crew had the correct heading information inside the cockpit. Okay. So that's not an issue. Was something wrong with the localizer approach to runway 28? This theory was tested with multiple test flights paid for by the Norwegian government. And they proved multiple times that it was possible to do the localizer approach accurately. It was even done by an aircraft very shortly after they did their approach. There was actually another airplane in the area did this same approach and did it just fine. And then they tested it with a TU-154. Multiple times. It was fine. So this crew f***ed up is what you're telling me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> in many more words. Yeah. <laughs> so is something wrong with the crew's instruments? Examination of the cockpit instruments showed that only the right automatic direction finder, or ADF, was being used, and it was working properly. So was the other one, they just weren't using it. This is basically an AM radio, by the way. It's super outdated. The DME was also working properly. Since those two devices were working, investigators determined that the crew was probably using their horizontal situation indicators, or HSIs, and their course deviation indicators, or CDIs, in addition to their GPS. This makes a lot of sense because, as Nick just stated, the ADF-DME combo is very, um, archaic. Yeah, antiquated. They just got GPSs implemented in their tupolevs. This is 1996. Let's use those. Please and thank you. They did. And ADF is already very antiquated by then. To dig into the cockpit happenings, investigators divided the 30-minute CVR recording into five segments, each of which had their own unique psychological and situational features. The first segment was four and a half minutes and was the beginning of the approach preparations, namely starting to descend from cruise level. The pilot in command ordered the left pilot to fly the aircraft so that the pilot in command could take over communication. But the left pilot redelegated the flying responsibility to the navigator, saying, I'll adjust the speed for you while you carry out the approach. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Everyone's got a task, right? Well, the pilot in command never really took communication responsibilities from the navigator, who's now doing both that and flying the plane. So, the, the pilot in the left seat is the one that said, hey. That- I know, he just told me to fly the plane, but you're flying the plane. So the right captain told the left captain that the left captain was going to fly. Yes. And then the left captain said, nah, the navigator's going to fly. Uh-huh. So whose responsibility again is it to take over the communications? The pilot in command said he would take over communications. Okay, so the one in the right seat? And yes. then he didn't. And then he didn't. Okay. The navigator did it instead. So now the navigator's doing everything. So what the hell is the pilot in the right seat doing? What are either of them doing? <laughs> the, le- the left seat captain is yes, controlling yeah, the yep. throttles. Yes, barely. so this is going fantastically it's suspected that this was because the navigator knew english better than the pilot in command then why the hell are they having him fly and do communications yes yeah (laughs) wait 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 you're right there's three pilot there's three people here who can control the airplane yes and you chose the person that spoke the best english to do the communications but also he's gonna Controlled the flight direction of the aircraft. This is one of the strangest things to me because he's flying the airplane from a non-piloting seat. Yeah. He's not looking out the window. (laughs) What the hell? All right. Okay. This breaks my brain a little bit. 
But it also makes me like, what's the cap- what captain in the right seat doing? Chilling out? What yeah. is he doing? Yep. <laughs> Basically. This isn't a chilling out part of the flight. This is like the most, one of the most and complicated parts of the flight. I didn't know this when I was doing my notes, but he's the guy who's supposed to be training on this approach. Yep. So why the f*** is the other one doing it? Yes, please have someone who cannot see out the cockpit window go ahead and fly the aircraft. That's a great idea. We're going to be here a while. Get into all of this. I think you're angry now. <laughs> so now the navigator's overloaded with responsibility, having to do 70 to 75 operations in 20 minutes. So why was he given all of this responsibility? Well, in a normal Tupolev 154 crew, it's two pilots and a flight engineer. When the navigator was added, the boards got the impression that he had to be given enough responsibility to pull his weight on the flight deck. And they thought it was quote-unquote questionable that the pilot in command didn't take comms responsibility and that the co-pilot gave the navigator lateral control responsibility. Yes, a pilot in command can dole out responsibilities as they see fit, but it is also their responsibility to ensure that no one flight crew member is overloaded. And that uh, happened. Also, can we talk about how the right seat pilot gave it to the left seat and then the left seat made the decision to give it to the navigator and not the pilot in command? He is also the captain captain. Yep. The one who has the most experience. That doesn't matter. I know. The whole thing is messed up. CRM is, like, not a thing. No. We will really talk about that later. Super not a thing. <laughs> like, ah, it's your problem. Nah, it's your problem. You're and then it's the, the navigator's like, help me. <laughs> I need help. You're definitely not the only one that noticed that. <laughs> he didn't have time to think the words, I need help. Help me. <laughs> no. Okay, so the pilot in command then called for the before descent checklist, but the CVR doesn't reflect that that checklist was ever completed. Or any other checklist after that, by the way. <laughs> and they've already gone through their descent and everything. What the hell is the point of even flying this aircraft, then? This is like having a bunch of noobs in an airplane And they're not! It. They have so many freaking hours in this airplane! Yeah, but they're not showing it very well out Between the four people in the cockpit, there's over 20,000 hours on this airplane! Yeah, well, apparently that just went out the window. Anyway... The last notable occurrence during this phase of flight was that the APHIS officer responded to the request to descend with the word approved. Oh. Even though he does not have the authority to do that. So we talked about this earlier, but there's no ATC controller. Correct. Correct. So why would they ask for a they descent don't approval? Understand they understand who the APHIS is. Nope. At all. They don't understand that APHIS is not air traffic control. They don't understand that he has zero authority authority over their flight whatsoever. He has no say in anything they do. I will get more into that later. Okay. Because it is important. So are they basically thinking he's an ATC yes. controller? Yes, they are. And that they, he can see them on a radar. And yes. they can trust him. And they cannot. Oh, no. Uh-huh. It's not his job. And they didn't. And you said one of the captains has flown in here before? Yep. So... The next section of the flight was 8 minutes and 40 seconds and was the point from descent to when they made the decision to fly the approach to runway 28. The navigator informed Svalbard that they were leaving cruise flight and requested to approach runway 10. And here's where more mistakes begin. I said all the mistakes begin, but I also acknowledge there were mistakes before this. Because he had so much to do as one person. He said, making a descent to level 060, when he should have said either 4,500 feet if he was going towards runway 10 via the Longyear non-directional beacon, or 5,000 feet if going toward runway 28 via the advent point. At no point should he have descended to 6,000 feet. 
and that's what he said he was doing. He's not even in control of that, so I don't know what's happening there. And they didn't. They descended to 5,000 feet. Uh, I feel like he was just overwhelmed. Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, he is currently the one flying the entire aircraft. You are correct. <laughs> so... And his calls to the APHIS... It was at this point that the APHIS officer basically asked, Wait, which runway are you landing on? The navigator went on to make more mistakes, calling the advent point L.A. instead, even though that's a totally different point in the 2-8 approach. And he also didn't confirm whether or not they were landing on runway 28 at all. To be fair, he is also the one flying the aircraft currently. Right. So right. the APHIS officer then asked to confirm and said, quote, After passing Isfjord, suggest you are heading for Alpha Delta Victor at 5,000 feet? And the navigator incorrectly answered, 2801, continue down to 4,500 feet, when it should have been 5,000 feet. Wow. And again, he's also not the one controlling any of those altitudes. No, so he's not in control of the altitude. He's just in control right. of them turning. The reason they ended up at the right altitude is because the, the two piloting crew that were in charge yeah. of the altitude New. had the chart in front yeah. of them and followed the chart. That's important, by the way. It's good that they were following the chart. Despite these verbal mistakes, the flight did not descend below the minimum altitude, and these mistakes are probably just struggling with English while having to fly a freaking plane and change everything from runway 10 as originally intended to the new runway 28. Right. Yeah, the reason- like, imagine trying to drive a car in the UK while also trying to speak Spanish to someone on the phone at the same time. That's basically what's going on right yeah. now. Yeah. The APHIS officer also never corrected these mistakes and just responded with, Roger. He was probably like, okay. He's, he's not air traffic it's control. He doesn't know. His job. No. Well, and if it's so confusing, he's assuming they know what they're doing. He'll just take his hands off of it. All right. At this point, the crew should have done a new approach briefing for runway 28. And this was never heard on the CVR, so they that's terrible. One. We can't say that they never did one. I they do. I say that it was never heard on the CVR because there were portions of the CVR on the in-cockpit microphone, not on the pilot's microphones, but the in-cockpit microphone where the background noise was louder than the voices. Mm -hmm. So hard to say. Yeah, they do call out that that is a problem, but in their findings, they do specifically say that they did not do an approach briefing. They assume they didn't do an approach briefing because they never heard it. Yes. All they can do is assume. In any report, you have to understand all they can do is assume. So, hoping still for runway 10, the crew asked, Long year information 2801, request runway in use for landing to runway 10. But when APHIS heard the phrase runway in use, he responded that runway in use is 2-8 rather than acknowledging their whole call. So the navigator acknowledged Roger 2-8. What they were trying to ask was, can we land on runway 10? Which yeah. the answer would have been yes. They can land on whatever runway they want. The captain has authority to do whatever he wants in this case. Okay, real quick, because my brain, I'm sure listeners are also very confused about this. Right? Yes. Was yeah. it because another plane didn't approach to 28? No. So that or is it runway- winds or what? It's- so winds are favorable to runway 28. Okay. But the captain can still decide that he wants to land on runway 10, just knowing that he would have a tailwind. Right. That's his decision. He didn't understand that that was his decision because he didn't understand that APHIS is an ATC. He thought ATC was telling them that runway 28 is the only runway in use, and that's the only possibility. And that's not what they were saying. But the, the reason... other captain knew this, though, right? No. He All didn't. of them thought the same thing. And it's a Russian thing. I'm going to get into it right now. Okay. So investigators were made aware that Russian pilots got reprimanded back at home for mistakes that they made abroad and were tattled on by foreign ATC. So Russian pilots had just come accustomed to avoiding discussion with ATC, and when they did have to talk to them, just do what they say. 
All right. So he thinks it's ATC, and he thinks he's telling them they have to do the approach to 2-8. They, they essentially wanted to just get off the phone with them and just considered him true ATC and did whatever he said. But this is also made worse by the fact that the navigator is asking, not asking, can we land on 1-0? He's asking, is runway in use 1-0? Which was his way of asking, can we land on 1-0? He so, didn't speak English well enough to ask, can we land on 1-0? Is runway one zero available for landing? He asked, "Is one zero in use?" This is the and navigator. So the, yeah. Yes, and so Aphis would always respond every time two eight runway in use because the, he thought the question that was being asked is which runway is in use, and that's not what the navigator was trying to ask. So there's a translational problem. There's a cultural problem. There's an overall miscommunication about the fact that Aphis is ATC because he ain't right. So there's so that's, an, that's a training problem. All of this is an enormous miscommunication problem. Also, the way that they you just said that they would interact with ATC is horrible. Yes. Like if, even if this was a controlled airport, you should rely on ATC to help you, not immediately want to stop talking to them. That is not what your goal should be. If you're nope. getting tattled on, you're doing something wrong. Right. Well, and part of that is also the hierarchy of now former Soviet hierarchy, like that's how it was run, and I'm not getting more into that. Yeah. So back to the situation. They are now having to fly an offset localizer approach in instrument meteorological condi conditions, adding more and more to the poor navigator's workload. Rather than just the approach of turning right into the airport, they now have to do this whole convoluted thing, and he's still doing both flying the plane and talking to quote-unquote ATC. So this left him with very little mental capacity to intake information let alone output. So he, he's under a lot right now. The next segment of the flight was 10 and a half minutes and was from the point of deciding to approach runway 28 up until passing the non-directional beacon named Advent, or ADV. The crew came to the consensus that they were going to fly toward Advent and their new altitude was 5,000 feet and they would be flying the standard localizer approach. This still does not classify as an approach briefing, just so we're clear. The navigator then set about resetting all of the instruments for the new approach. The radio instruments wouldn't have taken long, but he probably set up the GPS as a backup using the simplified programming, since reprogramming the entire thing would take at least five to nine minutes. They didn't have that. He most likely set it up in the omni-bearing selector mode to 283 degrees to show lateral deviation from the runway center line. Oh, that's why they were so far off course then when they crashed. They were trying to line up with the runway, and that's not what you were supposed to and do. This that is what their procedures were told them to do. Yep. Your GPS is to be set to the runway center line. Which, to be fair, they've never been trained to do an offset, offset approach. So, okay, to put this in perspective, the person who's doing all of this is the navigator. Yep. Does he have a chart? Why don't you ask that? I was going to wait. Uh, there is one approach chart in the cockpit. Power. And the two captains are using it. Yes. But they're not the ones turning the actual uh -huh. aircraft. Yes. So not only are they not trained to do this kind of approach, but the person in charge of directionally facing the aircraft doesn't have a way to see which where they're supposed to go to go in for the approach. Not at all times. They may have shown it to him several times. We he should be the one it. holding it. He's the one turning the damn aircraft. You're correct. Just they, saying, they, why the hell do they have it? They don't need it. They're not doing any of the flying portion. Basically not, since they gave it all to him. So why the hell do they have it? Look at the pretty chart. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And he didn't have time to study it, which is probably the reason for a lot of his uh, communication errors. There's a lot going on here. 
just to be clear, in case your mind lost data from before, the valley heading that they're supposed to take towards the airport is 300. Right. He just set his GPS at 283, which is the runway heading. Quote, as far as the boards are aware, a specific procedure for an offset approach like the localizer 28 approach does not exist. The boards agree that on a straight-in approach, the rule of setting the landing course does not contain undesired consequences, but for an offset approach, the rule is inherently dangerous. Therefore, the boards consider that the lack of a procedure for offset approaches coupled with the rule requiring to set the landing course on the HSI was a latent failure mechanism laying dormant in the system. End quote. So, no one had any training on this? None. At least the airline. So None of them knew how to do an offset approach. They didn't understand why the offset approach existed and why this was so important. This was so you don't run into mountains, but you know. Correct. So, why have a chart that has an offset approach? They never flew this approach before. Oh, if that's a great idea. Uh, right. It's in a chart, which means potentially you will have to eventually uh-huh. fly it, right? So, should you train your pilots to do it just in case? Yes. If you're flying out of that airport, yes, you should. And actually, company policy says they're supposed to, by the way. They never did. Anyway, let's move on and not dwell on the anger (laughs) and ire that Miranda is holding in her system. The first of six radio altimeter warnings was heard on the CBR. This did not worry the crew because they knew from the approach chart that 5,000 feet was a safe altitude. The APHIS officer called in again asking for an update, and the navigator said, Maintaining 5,000 feet, approaching Lima Alpha, which the APHIS officer acknowledged and asked them to report when passing ADV. And the navigator said, I will call you back over Lima Alpha 2801. During this whole thing, the navigator was confusing Lima Alpha and Advent again. Yep. Well, you know, he didn't have a chart, so... <laughs> Advent is the point where they are supposed to turn away from the airport so that they can follow the valley back to the airport, and Lima Alpha is the point at the end of the valley route where they turn toward the airport, the runway, namely. So they are two completely separate points. They then made their right turn and outbound, so away from the airport, but they made this turn incorrectly and ended up flying parallel and northeast of the correct track of which there's a picture on our website. There's a really good video on YouTube that we have linked on our website that shows good visuals, and I pulled screen caps from it that are also on our website, and Miranda is now looking at these as I continue. Because of his extreme workload, the navigator didn't have time to recheck his work and find any mistakes. The next segment of the flight is about three and a half minutes and is from the advent point until completing the fourth and very large turn. The navigator reported that they turned right after passing ADV on a heading of 155, which is the correct heading, He actually was, and quite intentionally, on a heading of 160 to correct for a wind drift, and it ultimately meant they were correctly on the heading of 155, and the APHIS officer asked for them to report back when they were heading down the valley toward the airport and a beam of the ADV point. Mind you, that's the correct heading, but they are currently to the left of the correct outboard track. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. At this point, the collective crew all say a bunch of things on the CVR that show how confused they are about where they are. Navigator. No, seven miles here. I'll adjust it. Co-pilot. Where are we? Well, maybe... He said that. If you somewhat would fly the plane that can actually see... Pilot in command. Did you notice the place? The place. This is all translated. This is all translated. Navigator. A beam the turning point. Pilot in command. A corrective turn will be necessary. Some unidentified crew member. We're approaching. Thank you. (laughs) So they know they're on the wrong track somewhere. And we'll have to correct during the approaching turn. Just to make sure the APHIS officer knew where they were, he again asked to make sure that they would report in when eight miles inbound, which is where they would have been a beam the advent point. 
The navigator responded and said he'll call back at 10 miles inbound. So the APHIS officer was like, no, 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 eight miles. The flight engineer said in English to the navigator, eight miles. And then the navigator radioed, ah, a beam eight miles to 801 inbound, which the APHIS officer said was correct. This was their last communication. Good lord. During this, they were turning final, and the radio altimeter went off three times, but they were still at 5,000 feet, as they were supposed to be, and were safe from terrain. The pilot in command took control of the autopilot turn knob when he said, I am turning just a little bit to the left. The crew was then uncertain of where they were in relation to the localizer center line down the valley. The pilot in command asked the navigator, what should I hold? Someone else asked, so what might the recommendations be? The co-pilot said, maybe we took the fourth turn too early. If they continued as they were, being to the left of the outbound track, they made the prescribed fourth turn. They would then be to the right of the localizer center line. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, guess what happened? Exactly that. It was at this point in the test flight that a senior AAIB investigator discovered that it was airline policy to only have one approach chart in the cockpit. And the navigator usually had it, but he didn't hear. The two pilots did. Again, stupid. Why are you having the person who's controlling the left and right to the aircraft not have the chart that will help them do the left and right to the aircraft? Bigger question. Why isn't there more than one approach chart? Yeah, that's another. Like, why does there only have to be one? There's four people in this cockpit. At least two, if not three of them, should have it. Yes. Probably money. I don't know. Approach charts cannot be that much money. They're not a whole lot of money, but you're supposed to replace them very regularly. Here in the United States, they go out of date every six months. You have to replace them. But here in the United States, the FAA provides them basically free. Or well, very they cheap. they don't want anybody to die because they, very, don't very, have very the, cheap. they don't have the approach chart. So the next point, I'm not sure how to summarize. So here's the full quote. The CVR readout shows that the crew had indications on the instruments that did not quite tally with each other. And this led to uncertainty. As a result of the technical examination, the boards know that the automatic direction finder number two was tuned in to long year. However, a non-directional beacon is not generally considered to be particularly accurate. When a VOR or a localizer is available, an NDB will be used as a backup aid only. The use of long ear was probably also influenced by the fact that the position of this NDB is a little to the left of the localizer 2-8 centerline. Even though the horizontal situational indicator is considered to be the most important instrument for a localizer approach in IMC, the airline had recently installed GPS, and as mentioned previously, the crews had developed confidence in this system due to the impressive accuracy they had experienced not more than 100 meters or 120 meters off on one side on precision approaches. And that's fair. Yep. Except in this situation. On both HSIs, the magnetic direction of the runway 283 degrees had been set according to regulations. If 283 had been put on the GPS as well, the crew had an indication that they had not yet reached the approach center line. End quote. So we're all confused. The fifth and last segment of the CVR is from the final turn until impact, a bit over three minutes. When they were on a heading of 300 degrees, the heading of the localizer of the valley, the pilot in command said, let's level out. But three seconds later said... No, it should be to the right, meaning he wanted to correct to the right, not realizing that they were already to the right of the center line. They ended up leveling out at 290 degrees, so they turned more left than they wanted to, but immediately made a corrective turn to the right on a heading of 306 degrees. With the wind drift, the plane slowly increased the distance from the localizer center line, flying more and more north of it. The radio altimeter alarm went off again, and it was ignored because they were still at 5,000 feet, which they knew to be a safe altitude. The pilot in command asked the co-pilot for the approach chart, and the two pilots determined it was time to descend, and all agreed. 
the navigator asked to turn to heading 320 for the right correction, as in the direction right, not the correct correction. And the co-pilot asked if that was too little, and the navigator insisted they needed to correct. Pilot in command disagreed and said, no, turn to the left. He was actually correct, for all who are counting. Yep. Six seconds later, the co-pilot agreed, and they turned left to heading 291. The navigator then saw the DME, the DME said 13 miles out, which is the point on the approach chart that they should descend. He was technically correct. He then said three degrees, five minutes, we're on the glide path. Now on final approach, the navigator still thinks that they should be making a correction to the right, and the two pilots said it should be to the left, and no one knows where exactly they are. They're all disoriented. The two pilots have somewhat of an idea that they're supposed to be over here on this other line for the approach. Meanwhile, this thing that the, the direct down the center line that the navigator has set quickly on his instruments is where he believes they should be. Also, I would like to state that the pilots could have taken directional control from the navigator uh-huh. at any point. You're correct. If, if they, they not, knew where they were. Yeah, if they didn't agree with him, right. or if they thought that they needed to go left and he said go right, they easily could have said, well, my aircraft, I will now be directionally uh-huh. flying this aircraft. But they kept saying, no left, no right, and all of these turns were being made. So he wasn't going against their decisions per se. Nope. Because they didn't know where they were either. So let me continue. The navigator probably thought they needed to go to the right because his GPS is tuned to the actual runway at 283 degrees, as I have said. He didn't realize it wasn't set to 300 degrees, which he also doesn't have the chart in front of him. So, quote, the GPS is not permitted as a primary approach aid, fun fact, and should not be utilized as one. Not at the time and not for this approach. It is understandable that the crews of the airline had built confidence in it due to its demonstrated accuracy. It is, however, quite hazardous to assume that a GPS-displayed indication must be the correct one unless it is confirmed by another source, end quote. Despite his albeit incorrect misgivings, the navigator made the turn to 291 degrees to the left. But that wasn't enough. It only took care of the wind drift, so now they are flying to the right of and parallel to the localizer center line. The co-pilot asked, We're on landing course now, correct? which investigators found highly concerning given the mountainous terrain. I agree with them in that the crew should have climbed to a safe altitude and gone around until they figured out the problem rather than persisting forward. You can always go around. Yep, please do it. If you don't know where you are, no one knows where you are, do go around procedure and figure it out. The pilot in command said to get to the landing course, make a slight correction to the left. But the navigator didn't and continued on 291 degrees. The pilot in command gave up and said to the navigator, you guide us. You guide us. To which the navigator responded, we're flying by Jefferson. The pilot in command then asked the navigator to select Advent for him, but the navigator disobeyed and said, not now. Later on, I've told you there is no need. Probably because he was looking at the DME, which validated where he thought he was. A slight turn to the right to 300 degrees was made. The two pilots continued being concerned about their position while the navigator controls them, and there are several instances of, to the right, to the left. To the right, to the right, to the right. I got the same. Take it back now. Yeah, oh, wait. yeah. Right, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they turned once more to 291 degrees until impact five seconds later. Now, the GPWS, the ground proximity warning system, had been active for nine seconds before impact, but the horn was never heard on the CVR. Hence, I said indicated. indicated. There was a red light on the panel that they saw. The boards conclude that for some reason, the warning horn was unserviceable, as in not working. 
So I the, feel like that wait, should be on... isn't that, like, a thing that you can't take off without it working? Shouldn't it be on the MEL, the minimum equipment yeah. list? Yes, probably, although I don't know if for this specific airplane and what the regulations were in Russia at the time, be it that they were also a new country-ish. So, the thing with that is, yes, most modern airplanes these days have a button you push that runs through all of the oral warnings... And all of the horn warnings, all of those things. And if one of them is not active, it will tell you that. So, yes, there's supposed to be a test for this that they're supposed to use. It was unserviceable, as noted. And not known for some reason. And apparently the light passes as serviceable for them. Which, I mean, it worked. It did what it was supposed to. Yeah, but if you're not paying attention to that one light, or if you don't know what it means... Apparently they did, because they reacted to it immediately. It wasn't good enough, but, you know... Well, they also determined that nine seconds wasn't enough. Well, no, that's not very many seconds, to be fair. So that's all I got. We're going to take our break. I'm going to finish my beer. And we're going to watch that YouTube video I mentioned. This is a time where you could pause and do the same, if you did so wish. It is 16 minutes. We're going to skip around a little bit. The guy does a flight simulator thing that doesn't follow the flight. It's not important. There's visuals. Go look at the visuals. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The holiday season is here. Have you started your shopping yet? If not, don't worry, we got a cool place for you to check out to buy unique gifts for your family and friends. Check out Wild Gallery. They're a small gallery based in Austin, Texas that sells original Native American art. Their art is a great way to decorate your place or to give as a great holiday gift to your friends and family. This is a great way to support a small business and give your loved ones something different for the holidays. Check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery. That's Whiskey, Yankee, Lima, Delta, dot Gallery, where you can make an appointment to see art in person. Learn more about the artist, and of course, shop. Again, check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery today. A mess. This was a mess. A very, very hot mess. So, there were a lot of findings, and we're not doing most of them. (laughs) I'm also not reading the probable cause. Because there isn't one. Oh. So, my work is done here. There's also quite a few recommendations, and I'm also not doing a lot of those. So... For the findings, they start with the aircraft portion. They found that the GPS mounted in the central instrument panel had been torn loose on impact and was observed lying by itself on the ground before the registration of parts started. Somebody, however, removed it from the site, and it has not since been returned to the AAIB. So this is the GPS that's in front of the captains. It was taken from the site and never seen again. It's okay. They weren't navigating anyway. That's true. Nope. Not properly. Nope. And this GPS wouldn't have been a whole lot of help, but still kind of strange. They found that the two compass systems in gyromagnetic mode indicated correct headings to the crew. This is important because they wanted to prove that actually the headings were correct that they were seeing in the cockpit. And they were. They found that the GPWS was activated about nine seconds before impact. The warning horn was for some reason unserviceable, but the red light enunciators were working. Huh. What do you know? They then mentioned the fact that another airplane flew this approach, a Dornier 228, shortly 
after this airplane impacted the mountain, and it had zero problems with this entire approach sequence. It's probably because they practiced the approach. Yeah. Knew what they were doing. Well, they knew how it worked. They also made sure that the approach, just in general, didn't have any anomalies, and it didn't. They did this by testing with that other TU-154. They demonstrated that it was within tolerance all the way around. Yeah, no, this was just really bad. Not a problem with the flight. Through everything. Right. Not just resource management. No, just, just a bad crew. everything. Right. <laughs> One important thing. Other with... than the flight engineer. Yeah, he was like an innocent bystander in all of this. The one thing he yeah. said on the CVR was correct. So good for you, my dude. Yeah, good for him. I'm sorry you died. He was only able to do his job, and to be fair, his job had nothing to do with navigating flying, this airplane. Yeah, actually so. flying the airplane, yeah. <laughs> his only had to do with the systems of the aircraft, so. Then on to the flight conditions, or the weather conditions. There's only one important one I found here. The approach was in IMC. Yeah. Yeah. This is pretty straightforward. They were in the clouds the whole time, all the way up until seconds before they hit the mountain. On to the crew. There's a lot. There's a lot, but actually I don't mention a lot of them because it's most the of them are thing. irrelevant. Yeah. They found that all of them were, like, they were licensed and that there was no anomalies with their, like, drugs they or didn't, alcohol. They didn't act certified. Well, no, but that's here nor there. They found that the navigator controlled the aircraft laterally by the autopilot turn knob most of the approach, while the co-pilot controlled the vertical navigation. Yep, something that's just strange and not normal in almost any other airplane. They found that the vertical navigation of the aircraft was carried out correctly, except for the fact that the descent was made off the localizer center line to the right. So it was made at all the right times and everything. All the descents actually ended up being correct per the chart, except that they were in the wrong place laterally. They found that there was no calls for checklists after the before descent checklist. They never did any other checklists. Big sign of crew resource management problems. They found that the radio altimeter warning signal was triggered five times when the flight was at a safe altitude. When the radio altimeter warning sounded for the sixth time, together with the visual warning of the GPWS, the crew probably became unsure as to whether the situation was urgent or not. You think? Leading to a somewhat slower than ideal reaction to the GPWS. However, the aircraft was, at this time, probably too close to the terrain for the crew to change the flight path sufficiently to avoid the mountains. Basically, the nine seconds... Not enough time. Not enough time. There was they no much, way they could change the course of that aircraft in nine seconds. They, However, they did say it was only like 48 feet from being able to clear the mountain in one direction. But still, nine seconds is not enough time for a human to react and I mean, it's literally clear like, that. Well, and for a plane to react to controls. Yes, that too. It's literally that fast. Like, yep. there's just no way for you to react that fast. Yes, exactly. Finally, in the crew portion, they found that the crew did not make full use of the ADFs on board, tuning ADV and LON on separate receivers. When the pilot in command asked for the navigator to tune to Advent when the ADF that he had in front of him was tuned to Long Year, he could have just tuned the other ADF on the pilot panel to ADV, and he could have been seeing both. I don't know why they didn't use the number one ADF, but they didn't. It was fine. It worked. They just didn't use it. Well, as we could tell, this crew didn't really work very well as a team, period, so... So, now on to the authorities, they say. This is the APHIS. I only bring up one of the APHIS ones because it is important. It's the one very, very important thing. Not that I think that this is what caused the accident, but I do think that this was pretty heavy in what happened. They found that the phrase, quote, approved, end quote, 
uttered by the APHIS officer without adding the approving authority could possibly have given the crew of Flight 2801 an incorrect conception of his status. That's translated, but the point is, he said approved to them about when they asked for their initial descent, and he had no authority to approve or disapprove anything that they do. Ever. So by him saying approved for their descent, they thought he had authority over them. That he doesn't. He didn't. He's not ETC. If he had never said that and instead had said, Correct. it is your decision, yeah. then that might have changed things. But We'll never just, know. That's very speculative. It is. And they don't have any understanding of who he is and what his job is. Now, on to the significant findings, is what they call them. I'm pretty sure this is what they did in place of a probable cause, because most of these were way more important than the probably 40 other ones I just skipped, and I'm not even slightly exaggerating. So we're going to do quite a few of these. They found that there is no Russian procedure for offset localizer approaches, modifying the required rule to set the landing course on the HSI. In Russia, they don't understand offset approaches. Period. Yeah, that's not great. Nope. They found that the course selection on both HSIs was 283 degrees, even though the approach course is 300 degrees. This setting does not affect the indication of the CDI. However, the CDI was pointing to 283 degrees on the dial, which is 17 degrees to the left of the approach course, giving a visual impression of wind drift to the left, and therefore giving a possible reason for a heading correction to the right. So they're trying to give the crew some benefit of the doubt of why they thought correction to the right was the right thing to do, even though the navigator was pushing them to do that. They found that the navigator in a stressed and overloaded working situation most probably followed the rules setting the landing course 283 degrees on the GPS in OBS mode instead of the approach course 300 degrees, so using the runway heading rather than the actual offset approach. They found that the crew was not fully aware of the status of an AFIS officer in comparison with the authority of a Russian air traffic controller, with the result that the crew accepted safety information from the AFIS officer as orders. They found that the crew had limited knowledge of the English language, with the consequences that they had problems communicating their intentions to the AFIS officer. This is not a problem anymore, for the most part around the world. No. They have to go through a certain amount of aviation English language learning. Yeah, you have to. That's the, You have to be functional. That is how they function. That is the language of aviation. The ICAO and the IATA have both agreed on a version of the English language that is called aviation language that everybody has to learn in order to operate an airliner, period. However, if you and your co-pilot speak the same language that's not English, can you do that in the cockpit? Yes, most airlines allow that above 10,000 feet. Okay. Yep. There is still stipulations where below 10,000 feet, it can be allowed if it's for the safety of the aircraft. So, like, in an emergency, don't try to battle yourselves through English. Right. Just try to get out what you're trying to say. Right. If it means you're going to speak in your own language, that's fine. And so many times we've heard on CVRs, or at least in transcripts, that mm -hmm. they're speaking their native language. Yes. It's it not just illegal. Happened, it happened last week. Yes, yeah. They were speaking mostly Russian and Ukrainian in that cockpit. Yes. It's not at all illegal. You can definitely speak your own language, but it is highly recommended by the, the ICAO that you speak in the English language below 10,000 feet because that's all going to be the critical points of flight, and it's going to be on the CBR should something happen at those critical points of flight. And it's important that it's well understood what they're trying to get across. They found that the navigator was overloaded with tasks, leaving little time for rechecking his work, thereby setting the scene for making mistakes. No, duh. 
They found that the pilots did not monitor the work of the navigator sufficiently. They just sat there. Literally, what did they do? I want to know what the pilot in the right seat was doing. He literally was doing nothing. Nope. There was just At one point, he turned a knob. Yeah, woohoo! Oh, good for you, boo-boo. No, that's not your job. Uh... They found that leaving the communications with APHIS to the navigator during the approach was not according to the normative documents. Basically, the procedures of the airline. They found that due to the workload of the navigator, the decision of the co-pilot to transfer the responsibility of controlling the aircraft laterally to him was inappropriate. No, really! No actual sh Sherlock. Why is he doing everything? This is just mind-blowing to me that there's any airplane out there where a navigator, somebody who does not hold a pilot certificate in any way, shape, or form, somebody who's trained to operate the controls of an aircraft, is flying this airliner in instrument conditions, not looking out the window. Not that there's anything to see out the window, that's not really the point, but point is, is he's at a totally different station. His job is to help them find their way. His job is not to fly that path. Yeah, I don't know why he's in charge of flying in <laughs> I, general. It just blows my mind that that even exists. Is he even a pilot? He is not officially a pilot. He's a navigator. His job is to navigate. So then why did they ever give him authority to fly the aircraft? Because apparently on this Tupolev, they have the knobs to do so. <laughs> that just blows my mind. That right there is mistake number one. Are you ready for the one that's super important? Sure. Yes. They found that the crew resource management of the pilot in command was not satisfactory. Nah. Really? You don't say. The governing person in the cockpit didn't use any form of crew resource management whatsoever. And the fact that they put that phrase in here shows you it existed at the time and they were well aware of it. They weren't using any of it. They found that when the crew had made the decision to carry out the approach to runway 28... A new approach briefing was not accomplished. They didn't do one. Again, they don't think they did one. Most likely they didn't. They found that the crew made the proper correction for the wind drift, but did not try to intercept the outbound track for ADV, with the consequence that they overshot the approach centerline, turning inbound. Two more. They found that the crew started descent in a mountainous area without firm and positive control of the lateral navigation demonstrated by the disagreement within the crew as to whether to correct to the left or the right. And finally, they found in spite of the uncertainty within the crew as to whether they were approaching correctly or not, they continued instead of abandoning the approach and climbing to a safe altitude to solve the problem. And do a go-around procedure, as they should have done. The big thing here is that crew resource management didn't exist. Was non-existent. Completely, absolutely didn't exist. When they started having this disagreement in the cockpit about exactly where the airplane was, this should have demonstrated to anyone, let alone all of them, that they were all disoriented. And they were not safe to be descending. They needed to go around, reset themselves up once they had themselves in a safe place. And in reality, if they understood what the APHIS was, they could have just done the 1-0 approach. So, like we said, there is no probable cause. Those are as close as you're going to get to a probable cause. So... We're going to move on to the recommendations, which read a little funny, so we'll just go through it here. Buckle up, buttercup. They recommend to what I have to assume is the Russian Federation's Civil Aviation Authority. It's the RFCAA, so that's what I have to assume it is they're talking about. Wait, what is it again? The RFCAA. Russian Federation Civil Aviation Administration. I was pretty dang close. Okay, so they recommend to them. 
To reassess the crew operation guidelines for the TU-154s concerning the tasks ascribed to the navigator. Yeah, no, really? Starting with the descent from cruising level. Give him a clear set of guidelines. If he's going to exist as a job, which by the way they don't anymore, then give them a very clear set of responsibilities. With the advent of GPS, not really necessary. They recommend to the RFCAA to assess if the English language program for air traffic controllers could be beneficial for air crews as well. Yeah! <laughs> it is! It turns out it would have been really helpful in this situation. They recommend to New Covo Airlines operations to reassess the present crew resource management on approaches related to the norms in force and assess if a CRM program could be beneficial to flight crews. Yes! <laughs> it is! Pretty sure New Covo Airlines does not exist anymore. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. boop a boop Give me a minute. Jinx really likes the bubbles. Yes, he definitely we does. We should do a TikTok while we're doing our post-episode of him trying to catch New the bubbles. Kobo ceased operations in 2001 when it merged with Siberian Airlines. Okay, so they didn't last much longer. They also recommend to New Kobo Airlines operations to assess the present policy of collecting flight safety information concerning foreign airspace and destination airports. Just all around being well aware of where you're flying to. I also recommend to the airline to assess whether the pilots should have their own approach charts in front of them during approach to improve the situational awareness. Yes, they should. Yes. Anytime you can have more information in front of you about what you're trying to do is never a bad thing. As long as it helps everyone get on the same page. Yes. They recommend to the airline to assess whether it is necessary to reinforce an instruction to the flight crews to discontinue an approach if any crew member becomes uncertain of the navigation and climb to a safe altitude before attempting to solve the problem. In other words, if any one of them was disoriented, not all three, if any one was disoriented, discontinue the approach, climb to a safe altitude, and go around. They recommend to the Norwegian Civil Aviation Authority or Aviation Administration to assess the current policy of giving priority to radar installation at airports in mountainous areas. Now, I can't speak to whether or not that changed in this specific case, but I'm guessing they probably have some form of radar here now. It only seems appropriate and possible these days. It's been 25 years since then. ADSB also exists, which allows you to track things a lot more accurately than standard radar. Yes. And not very expensive either, turns out. You can do it with a small computer. Yeah, Brendan does it on his iPad. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, you can literally design your own input to look for these things. It's, it's silly. Anyways, they also recommend that although the boards recognize the necessity of limiting the amount of information presented to flight crews on the approach charts, the board recommends that Jeppesen and company evaluate their policy on secondary information and considers whether this information may be present differently than on the approach charts. So why this came up is because Jeppesen themselves had decided that any secondary information, anything they deemed as secondary information, is not on the chart, period. Because they didn't want to clutter the chart, which I understand. Which the chart's pretty cluttered already. It is yeah. pretty cluttered. But there has to be some way of actually governing what is directly secondary information per situation. Because they noted that there was a couple of critical pieces of information missing from this chart that might have been really useful to the crew. That is all. That is also all of the recommendations that I'm doing. So, that's that. Wow. That was Nukova Airlines Fly 2801. Thank you for listening. Hope you guys got as mad as I did. Or at least as outraged, I think, is more 
I wasn't really mad. I was just like... You are outraged. I, I am <laughs> engaged and I am outraged. <laughs> I cannot wait till I can actually say that. If you know what that's from, I think I've said it before on the podcast, but... It's it would have been ages ago. It was a long time ago. I'll probably get to say it first. You will. <laughs> okay, unless I somehow get a boyfriend and then have him become my fiancé in the relatively near-ish future, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons. You guys are awesome. Everyone's awesome, but you guys are, like, extra awesome because you're, like, helping us keep going. You know what I mean? If you can't be a patron or you don't want to be, we get it. You can support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribing to us. We now have our episodes come out on Facebook, so you can do that on Facebook. You can also follow any of our social media and buy merch or, you know, just send us a cool email. We like those. Even just give this episode a like real quick on whatever you're listening to it on. Yeah. Boosts it into other people's Or subscribe to the show. Like you can subscribe to shows on Spotify. Subscribe to the show. And it helps people who also listen to other shows. We pop up. So, By the way, you do not have to be a patron to get ducks. If you want three rubber ducks. That are signed by us. As long as you don't live in Australia. (laughs) So sorry. (laughs) Uh, Look on USPS for the list of countries that we cannot ship to, because we will not ship to those countries. We will try our best to get one to you if it's within reason, because unfortunately we have two Australian patrons, too, that now suddenly can't get many things from us. Because I'm not paying $65 in shipping. That has just changed, by the way. Like in September. But yeah. So. Yeah, unfortunately. But we will try our best. Yeah. But you can still buy merch. And it can get sent to you. Because that's not our shipping. We don't We We don't don't pay for that shipping. So, again, thank you so much for listening. Check us out. Listener episodes. If you need extra content, you haven't listened to those. Those are pretty entertaining. You can also submit stories for listener episodes. What date does this come out? The the week after the 16th. of Thanksgiving. The week of Thanksgiving. Okay, so we'll probably be recording our listener episode for the month. That week. Before the next episode. If you are hearing this the day it comes out, or shortly thereafter. You may send in. We, I don't think, I don't even think we have any for this month Nope. As of this moment when we are recording, at the beginning of November, we have received nothing. Yeah, not even from David. Come on, David. Up your game. That's all right. I mean, maybe we don't. We've had this problem before where we didn't have any Which a few is months ago. And then we just combined ones that we got because we didn't have enough. So that's all right if that happens. For December, we can do the best present you ever received. Ooh. I think that would be a fun one. That is fun. Yeah. I got to think about it. I was recently given a very nice set of aviation headsets. Thank you, dear. That was for your birthday, dear. though. For my birthday. But that that's, wasn't for Christmas. That's still, still a present. present. Well, any holiday. I don't want to say just Christmas because some, some of you out there may not celebrate christmas so whatever holiday around this time of year you celebrate feel free to let us know or any other i'm just saying this was a present i've also been gifted the presence of a glider flight which was really cool i will say that is quite the experience i'm really glad that your favorite so far has been the david clark headset. david clark headset is fantastic (laughs) also one of my favorites in the past was five hours at the sim center for an airline Flying the 777, the 757, and the A320. That was way, way, way back when I was younger. I'm going to have to think about it. I got to think about it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. 
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you're using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy, and a big thanks to Jake for editing this episode. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.